there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. Everyone suffers. It's one of the facts of life that we have to deal with. Everyone lies about it. You think some people don't lie about their suffering, but some people lie to make it worse. Oh, how I've suffered. And we know these people as martyrs, people who gobble down suffering, and we know we're not like them. And then there are the other people who lie to prove that they're happy and that they never suffer because life is consciousness, and they want to prove that their consciousness is always wonderful. They always paste a smile on their face and pretend that everything's just fine. And so if an upset comes, oh, it's okay, I just get along and I just overcome it and I just don't resist and I do this and I do that and all these other lies. And they're lies because sooner or later you have to admit that everyone, even you, suffer and suffers. So either way, either making it worse or pretending it's not there is a pretense invented by the false personality. And the reason that the false personality invents this pretense is so that it can ensure its own continued survival. It looks like false personality and suffering are closely linked together. And there's probably a reason for that. It's probably because false personality and suffering are closely linked together. Gurdjieff said, people imagine they have something to sacrifice. There's only one thing they have to sacrifice, and that is their suffering. Now, if you think of false personality and suffering as linked together, it means that you have to sacrifice your false personality. And we all say, well, that's great, let's do that. Except that that means that you have to sacrifice yourself, who you think you are, your feeling of I, and everything with which you have identified that feeling of I. And in case you haven't caught on yet, that's not something you want to do. That's not something that you can be coerced to do. That's not something that you can be convinced to do. That's not something that someone can explain to you that you must do and then you'll do it. This is something you have to see for yourself. And if you don't see it for yourself, you will never, ever begin to do it. The very word sacrifice is obnoxious. I looked it up and the dictionary said, an act of slaughtering an animal or person or surrendering a possession as an offering to God or to a divine or supernatural figure. That does not define well the work idea of sacrifice as I understand it. So we've got that suffering is a fact of life given our condition. Everyone here suffers. When I say here, I mean on this planet, everyone here suffers. All the people that we know, all the people that we interact with, that we know exist, all the people with bodies that we can see and touch and talk to and like that. All of these people suffer. I don't know what it's like elsewhere. I don't know what it's like when people transform from this into whatever it is that we can be. I don't know what it's like then or there. But here, everyone suffers. The way we suffer can be subtle. Some people are very subtle sufferers. Some people, when they suffer, the whole neighborhood knows it. Some people are very devious about their suffering. They're suffering in one way, but they make it look like they're suffering in another way. Could you give me an example of that? Yeah, just checking to see that you're still here. Okay, we're not just popping up with examples. See, here's the thing. You should be firing on a couple more cylinders. <laughs> 
because I am going to ask you questions. I'm, you know, there's going to be a test, and it's called life. Life will test you. An example of devious suffering, that's what you're looking for right now. It's like you are suffering because your husband or your wife isn't doing what you want them to do. And so what do you do? Well, you yell at the dog or the cat or the kid. That's devious suffering. Do you see how it's devious? It's not straightforward. It's not telling the truth about it. You're not saying what it is that's bothering you. You're lying about it. You're saying it's something else. Transference is also what they call that. So the way we suffer can be subtle or it can be very dramatic. We all know the drama queens and kings who deck the halls with boughs of holly when they suffer. Everybody knows they're suffering. And the other people who suffer silently, like your mother or whoever in your life you learned that from or you knew that from. Everybody knows one. Everybody knows a silent suffering martyr. Some of our suffering can be very complex. It's very difficult to track it down, sort it out. And some of our suffering is contradictory. We don't understand why should I be suffering over this? This is something I should be happy about, yet I'm suffering over it. So it's contradictory. You need to see these things about your suffering. We don't like to discuss our suffering. We don't like to think about our suffering. We don't like to address our suffering. We don't like to embrace our suffering. We have this aversion to suffering. We've all noted in others and tasted in ourselves the joys of martyrdom. There are times when you have suffered and you've been very happy about it. There's something contradictory about that, isn't there? I've been very happy about it because it showed that this other person was not a good person and that you were a good person. Or let's take the basic example of what kind of people feel good when they do bad things? Bad people. What kind of people feel bad or badly when they do bad things? Good people. So it follows from that, the worse you feel, the better you are. So already, suffering is something that is really important because it proves how good you are. And that's the whole idea behind martyrdom. So if you're not yet aware of this in yourself, there's much for you to find out about how your machine works. So keep on observing. And this is an area that I don't think you could observe too much. If you do, it's like, well, see, here I go again with it's like. It's like, <laughs> we'll leave that one off. Human suffering is a long-standing habit that's been passed along through history. Its rites and rituals are so entrenched, even observing it is taboo. Think about observing the suffering of someone who's lost someone close to them. You're not supposed to observe that. You're supposed to commiserate. You're supposed to comfort. You're supposed to empathize, be compassionate, but you're not supposed to observe it. Observing it is thoughtless, heartless, brainless, cruel. Can you think of some other adjectives, <laughs> descriptors? Yeah, that's how it is in our society. It's something that's protected that suffering is protected by rites and rituals, societal taboos. Because we don't observe our suffering, we are under its power at the effect of its private inner process of immobilization. Because over time, suffering immobilizes us. People don't understand this, but you have to do something about suffering or else it will crystallize you. It will immobilize you. As an example, it's like Arthur's shoulder. Wednesday, Arthur went to the chiropractor and he got adjusted and worked over pretty hard. And had you ever been to a chiropractor before? No. Never been to a chiropractor in his life. He's 63 years old. So Saturday, he was supposed to go back. And did you go back? No. No. He was supposed to go back. But Wednesday, he felt so great. He had so much energy flowing through him. He was so excited. He was going to go back Saturday. When Saturday rolled around, he wasn't going back. And I said, why not? He said, well, it was too sore. He was in too much pain. Now, this is exactly what I mean 
by not being able to observe our own suffering. If you're working, what is that about? What is all that about? The pain is from having long immobilized parts moved. At first, it feels great because it releases all this energy. But later, all those parts that are not used to moving are sore, just like any other muscles or anything in your body gets sore if it's not used for a long time and then you begin to use it. It gets sore. It's just what happens. There are things that build up in the body and unless we keep them moving, they create problems. And when we have to flush that stuff out, it can be problematic. It can be painful. So Arthur didn't go Saturday because he didn't want to be in more pain. Is that right? Yes, sir. He didn't want to be in more pain, so he didn't go to the place where they get rid of the pain. This is what we do with suffering. This is how we suffer. And he doesn't see that his lack of movement in his shoulder is because of the pain. The pain keeps him from moving it. He can only reach so high because the pain stops him. So the suffering immobilizes him. Once we give in to that, once we give in to that and we want to keep our suffering, I'm not going to move it because if I do, the pain is eventually going to go away. What would I do without that pain? It defines me. I'm the guy who can't raise his arm above this height. And everybody knows that. And I can't give that up because it defines who I am. Everybody knows me as that man. If you're on this planet, you've learned to suffer mechanically. Arthur and his shoulder is a perfect example of suffering mechanically. There's no consciousness involved in it. There's no awareness involved in it at all. It's all mechanical. It hurts, don't move it. It hurts, don't go back to the doctor. It hurts, don't go to the dentist. It hurts, don't have it drilled. It hurts, kill the pain, but don't deal with the source. And this is the American way. I don't know about other countries, but I imagine that the drug companies are prospering there as well because we don't deal with the cause of something. We deal with the symptom. Remove causes, we remove symptoms because we don't wish to suffer consciously. We wish to suffer mechanically. It's our habit. It's our lifestyle. It's what the whole world is doing, suffering mechanically and never getting to the source, the cause of the suffering where it can be alleviated. The less understanding we have, the more difficult it is to connect the dots. If you have a little coloring book, a child's coloring book with connect the dots, and you have a piece of paper over half of the dots so that you can't see them, you can't connect them, you'll never really make sense of connecting the dots because you won't know which goes where. You won't know what it's supposed to look like. So the less understanding, the less light we have on the dots, the more difficult it is to connect them. Ask yourself and think of an answer. I don't want you to just ask yourself this question. I want you to think of an answer. Can I possibly imagine I can change if I don't give up something? Yes, we'll take a couple of moments just to let you think about that. Yes, we can imagine that. Very easily we can imagine that. And it's all imagination. But the truth is there is no way that you can possibly change without giving up something. And we know that intuitively. And we don't like it because we intuitively also know that whatever it is that we're going to have to give up, we don't want to give up. I have to give up this pain in my shoulder. Well, that's no problem at all. Well, you have to go to the chiropractor to do it. Oh, no, that's worse. Most will agree we'll have to give up something. It's the something upon which we can't agree. That's because of different levels of understanding. And different levels of understanding moves right into different valuation. The more you understand, the more your values change. As an example, it's like I was watching a television program once. It was Art Linkletter, Kids Say the Darndest Things. 
and he had a little boy and his father on the program. A little boy meaning a little boy, two or three years old. And on the table, he had big glass bowls, two big glass bowls on a coffee table. They were sitting on a sofa. And two big, huge glass bowls on the coffee table. One of them was filled with shiny pennies. The other one was filled with crumpled up greenbacks. I don't know whether they were dollar bills or whatever they were, probably dollar bills back then. Crumpled up dirty dollar bills. And the child was allowed to have whatever he wanted. And the father sat there in agony as the child grabbed handfuls of pennies. (laughs) Valuation. The father understood something the child didn't understand. And he valued the crumpled up dirty greenbacks. But the kid understood that pennies are for kids. And they're shiny and there are lots of them and you can get a whole handfuls and buy candy or whatever. And the father had this different understanding and that is what makes the difference in valuation, you see, is what we understand creates this huge, vast difference in what we value. So that's my it's like for that. The more you understand, the more dots you can connect, linking up cause and effect in more instances. If you know the house is on fire, you're more willing to exit the house post-haste. You're not going to go back for that picture of Aunt Tilly or that, or your cup of tea or, or well, I had a, a steak on the stove and it was, <laughs> I want that steak. You know, it's like you're not going back for it if the house is on fire because your valuation is all changed because you now understand something that you did not understand previously. Rather than getting bogged down in the details about what to give up, the work asks us to give up our habitual mechanical suffering doesn't go into details, give up this, give up that, because our valuation is different, because of our understanding, it's different. But it says to give up our habitual mechanical suffering. Maurice Nicole said the work regards as the greatest sin being identified with mechanical suffering. It leads nowhere. It just repeats. When I first found out about this work back in the early 70s, one of the first phrases that really stuck with me was useless, unnecessary suffering. Wow. Useless, unnecessary suffering. There's a difference between useless, unnecessary suffering and necessary suffering. And I knew that was true. I didn't understand it fully, and I'm sure I don't today. But I knew that it was true. I intuitively grabbed hold of that. I knew that was true, that there is a useless, unnecessary suffering, and there is a useful suffering, a suffering that can be useful, that leads somewhere, that goes somewhere, that gets you something valuable. But there's a useless, unnecessary suffering that simply repeats, and it doesn't lead anywhere. It just comes back around on itself again and again and again. Your shoulder is useless, unnecessary suffering. But in order to get rid of that useless, unnecessary suffering, you've got to usefully suffer. You've got to consciously suffer. You've got to, in this example, go to the chiropractor and have him beat you up and make you suffer so that you can get rid of this useless, unnecessary, immobilizing suffering. Or if you prefer a different example, you have a toothache and you need a root canal and you've heard all about root canals and you know that they're horrible and you're not going to get that. So you go and you get some stuff for the toothache and to kill the pain because you're not going to get this. And sooner or later, it's just going to die. Then you won't have to suffer anymore. And that may take a year, but it doesn't matter because it's better that way. And that's what we do. When you could go and in an hour have it taken care of and that's over. No, no, no. I'd rather go through it for a year doing it myself. Uselessly, unnecessarily suffering. (laughs) Mechanically. Without thinking. 
Well, what do you mean without thinking? I think about it all the time. It's all that I ever think about. Yes, you think about it mechanically. You dwell on it mechanically. You react to it mechanically. You have no choice in the matter. It runs your life. You chew on the other side of your mouth now because it's running your life. You don't drink this, you don't drink that because it makes it hurt, whatever it is. Too cold or too hot makes it hurt, so you don't drink that. You don't do this. You don't eat that. So your whole life is mechanically molded by this, but you don't do anything about it except mechanically avoid dealing with it. That's useless, unnecessary suffering. There is no greater sin than being identified with mechanical suffering because it leads nowhere. In this work, anything that doesn't lead anywhere, we try to get rid of. Well, well what, about, what about this or what about that? If it doesn't lead somewhere, we try to, try to get rid of it. We can't hope to awaken with this millstone around our neck. Millstone of mechanical suffering. That's what it is. It's a millstone. And you cannot hope to awaken with this weight dragging you down. Rather than remove it, we justify it. How do we justify it? Observe how much you are vexed by injustice. A good example, yesterday, Steve had an argument with Tammy. And, of course, we didn't see the argument. Tammy just told us about the argument they had. They had an argument over. He was telling her something that I was saying. I hope you're listening because that's the exact... He's almost using word for word the words I used. Was that somewhat... Word for word the the words I used. So I hope you're listening to this. (laughs) And I didn't tell him this. I didn't tell him to say this. He's doing this all by himself. And they got an argument because he told her the truth and she wouldn't listen to the truth. Basically, right? Basically, I told her what it is, same thing you're telling everybody, and she didn't listen to me. So we had a fight. Injustice. You'll listen to him, but you won't listen to me. Have you ever heard that one? Have you ever thought that one? Yeah, all the time. It's an injustice. It's just wrong. Why will you listen to him, but you won't listen to me? You'll listen to Oprah, but you won't listen to me. You'll listen to Dr. Phil, but you won't listen to me. It's injustice. And we're vexed by it, aren't we? We suffer with injustice. How can there be justice on a planet where everything happens the only way it can because everyone is asleep? We know there's no way. Yet, because we're asleep, we keep expecting justice from sleeping people. Because we don't think they're asleep. When we're asleep, we think they're all awake. They're doing it on purpose. Because we're asleep. And asleep means that we're governed by negative emotions. And governed by negative emotions means that the world is governed by hate. Injustice means that the world is governed by hate. You won't listen to me, and I hate you for it. We don't say that, but that is the truth. Because all Negative emotions lead down to violence. The negative emotion of being vexed by injustice is just another way of hating, of being violent. Don't take my word for it. Find the truth of it. Only when we begin to see our own mechanical behavior can we begin to cease blaming others who are in the same state. It's our mechanical behavior we have to see. Of course we can see everyone else's. And of course we can blame them for being that way. Because we do not see our own mechanical behavior. And we have to begin to see it before we have any hope of pulling the blame off of other people and putting it where we can do something about it. We justify, which means keep, our suffering by blaming machines for causing it. Here's where level of being comes into play. A low level of being forgives no one, cancels no debt, and quite frankly sees only its own merit. I'm right. You should listen to me because I'm right. That's a low level of being. You should listen to me because I'm right. That's taking out an ad on the front page of the paper. I have a low level of being. But it's okay because no one can read it. No one will see it. And the only people who can see it and can read it won't judge you for it. So you're safe doing that. Except that it causes untold misery, useless, unnecessary suffering in your life and gives other people the opportunity to imbibe 
in that tasty punch bowl of grief. When you have a low level of being, you can't even see the account. You have any idea how many accounts you have? No, because your level of being isn't at a place where you can include them all. Why? Because you're not aware of them. Why? Because you have a low level of being. Why? Because you're asleep. You are not aware of all that is in your being. And when you start to become aware of what is in your being, there's nothing you can do about it. You have to wait. You have to wait for the light to connect the dots. And we don't want to wait. We want it all to be gone right now. That's not how it works here. We ascend the ladder of being by seeing for ourselves we are as bad as anyone else. The person that you're arguing with, you're as bad as, you're worse than them. That's the truth. The person you are arguing with, you are as bad as them, but you won't see that about yourself. So you're going to argue. At the top of the ladder is divine being. What makes divine being divine being? It forgives all. It has no debts. This is why fundamental religious people have tiny gods. Tiny gods who are vengeful, murderous, slaughter innocents, who are judgmental and punish, who are hard taskmasters. Because they have a low level of being, they can't see far enough up the ladder to see a bigger god. A bigger god is a god that forgives more. The bigger your God, the more he forgives. Until finally, God holds nothing against anyone. But most people can't conceive of a God who holds nothing against anyone and don't want to. I remember one time sitting in a class, Dr. Lamza was teaching, he was speaking. It was a Bible class in St. Petersburg, Florida. He was speaking and he said that his personal opinion was at the end, God was going to forgive everybody. And a woman went ballistic, went ballistic. She absolutely would not stand for that. These people are going to pay for what they do. You mean these people who did all these horrible things are just going to get away with it? She was just absolutely stuck on the idea that they had to pay. Needless to say, she had chained herself to that place in that low level of being where she was not going to cancel anyone's debt and she was not going to have her debts canceled because that's really what the Lord's Prayer is all about, isn't it? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive our offenses as we forgive those who have offended us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us, as we forgive those. So only forgive us as we have forgiven others. Ouch. But we justify what we don't forgive. We don't cancel, we justify. (laughs) We cannot remotely understand divine being, canceling all debts. We cannot remotely understand it because we have such a backlog of negative emotions and accounts that we are unwilling to give up that we have justified, that we have chained people to and chained ourselves to. Abraham Lincoln said something to the effect, I won't get this exactly right, a man can't keep a slave without enslaving himself because the one end of the chain that's around the slave, is the other end has to be around him. <laughs> it was dead on. That's why keeping accounts is absolutely insane. But it's an insanity that runs rampant on this planet, in us, in you. So talking about at the top of the ladder is divine being which forgives all, a thing we can't remotely understand with our present store of negative emotions. Why? We include very little in our consciousness of what we are like ourselves, projecting onto others what we can't accept as being in ourselves. God can't be insulted. His would-be followers, however, will murder those they imagine insult him, all the time pretending they don't judge. They don't have to. They've got this little tin God that judges for them and then commands them to murder these people. That's sick, people. 
False personality imitates unconvincingly every spiritual fruit, swelling itself like a caricature balloon in a Thanksgiving Day parade. Have you seen those Thanksgiving Day parades where they have these goofy balloons and Mickey Mouse and Santa Claus or whatever they have? And it's like that. False personality swells itself up just like that. And it's unconvincing. You know that's not the real deal. It's just a balloon. Of every spiritual fruit, exoteric Christianity has replaced conscious suffering with mechanical suffering making pompous mini-martyrs of its adherents who can't wait to be slapped around so that they can turn the other cheek. And then you'll find people who are willing to do the slapping because they deserve it. Well, that's what they asked for. I just gave them what they wanted. Never seeing their own love of suffering in doing that. Of course, they've missed the whole point of it being an internal attitude rather than an outer action. The internal state may or may not produce a certain action. You know, this turn the other cheek business. This has nothing to do with somebody striking you on one side of your face and then you turn them the other and offer that. Here, oh, go ahead, hit me again. You do that and I guarantee you almost anybody, is, if they hit you the first time, they're going to hit you again if you do that because that just, that kind of superior attitude drives them crazy. That's probably why they're pounding on you in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you add that to it, and you're going to get pounded more. And then, of course, you're going to feel better. You're swollen head and all. You're going to feel better because you're better. You prove that you're a better person, and now you've suffered for God. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. You know, the funny thing about people who are persecuted for righteousness' sake is they're never persecuted for righteousness' sake. They're persecuted for idiots' sake because they were idiots they were persecuted. More people are persecuted for, because they're idiots than are being persecuted because they're righteous. So the internal state of turning the other cheek, I don't know what that's going to do. Maybe you will let the person hit you again. Maybe you won't. I don't know. But if you act from that internal state, that is what the gospel is talking about. It's talking about acting from that internal state, not acting from an external mechanical state. If you turn the other cheek mechanically, you've done nothing. You've gained nothing. It goes nowhere. You can keep doing that all day long until you don't have any cheeks left. But if you turn the other cheek internally, something happens. I don't know what, but something always happens. I can tell you this. The internal state may or may not produce a certain action, but it will always produce the internal state, and it will always produce the fruit of that internal state. And the fruit of turning the other cheek is peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's peace. How do I know that? Because you don't resist evil. If you don't resist it, it can't go anywhere. It has no place to rest. When you resist it, you've added to it. But the internal state always produces peace because that's the fruit of that internal state, turning the other cheek. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, Paul said, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Incidentally, that's 2 Corinthians 7.10. If you'd like to read the whole thing, there's a little bit in there. The sorrow of the world is mechanical suffering and produces death because it just goes over and over and over again until you're finally dead. Some people suffer to the grave uselessly, unnecessarily, the same thing over and over and over again. But conscious suffering leads to a change of mind that sets us free. It's that internal state of turning the other cheek, and it sets you free from what happened out there. It insulates you from what happened out there. How can something be said to two people? We talked about this once, and I asked, can you imagine a person who would not react violently? And someone said, no, and they couldn't then they couldn't imagine a God who would not react to being insulted. They could not imagine a God who would cancel all debt. And that's because of our limited level of being. We cannot remotely grasp this idea. 
with our current store of negative emotions. Mechanical suffering is suffering in your sleep. Conscious suffering is suffering because you have behaved mechanically and you see it. What could be more conscious than the suffering that you experience when you see the suffering that you have caused with your mechanical behavior? Another good example of that was yesterday when Jess said to Steve, after Steve, he was right, why wouldn't Tammy listen to him? And they had a fight about it. And Steve, well, why shouldn't I tell her? It's my right to tell her. She's my wife. And Jess said, well, you had an argument, right? And he said, yes. Jess said, well, is that what you wanted? And that was it. Steve saw in that moment. He saw. He saw that his mechanical behavior was causing someone he didn't want to cause suffering to suffer. And that, for him, was conscious suffering. When you see your mechanical behavior and what it's doing, you suffer. This is why we don't like to see it, because we don't want to suffer. But conscious suffering is suffering because you behave mechanically and you see it. One is done asleep and leads nowhere. The other is done awake and leads to metanoia, which precedes change of being. Now, I don't know what your being has attracted in your life, but you do. You know something that your being has attracted in your life, and you don't want it there. And you don't know how it got there. And you don't know how to get rid of it. And that can be a terrifying feeling. And here's the key to it. Metanoia precedes change of being. If you don't want what's in your life, get on another floor. If you don't like what's on the first floor, get to the second floor. If you don't like what's on the second floor, get to the third floor. If you don't like what's on the third floor, get to the next floor. Change your level of being. You will leave behind the things that you don't particularly want, the things in your life that are experiences that you no longer need. Change your level of being, and it has to go with it. It's just like people who go to bars. Not that people who go to bars are bad. It's just that people who go to bars usually drink, and people who go to bars and drink usually get drunk or get feeling good, whatever you want to call it. And then they do things that they later regret. But they go back and do it again, mechanically. Every once in a while, someone wakes up in one of those places, and they stop doing that. They go to AA or something, and they stop doing that, because they realize that if they keep doing that, the same things are going to happen over and over again. And they don't want those things to happen over and over again, so they change their level of being. And it takes work, but they do it. That's what we're talking about. It's like that. If you want to change your level of being, you have to suffer while you're awake. And believe me, waking up is suffering. Because when you see what your mechanical behavior has done, it is real suffering. Useful suffering that leads to a change of being. Because it leads to a change of mind. And the thing that Jess said to Steve changed his mind. Now what Jess said didn't change his mind. What Steve saw changed his mind. And once he changed his mind, it was a segue, was an open door to a change of level of being. Whether he will change his level of being or not, I don't know. He probably won't do it right away. He'll probably go back, like a dog returns to his vomit, he'll probably go back to telling people what to do again. He'll probably go back to knowing better than other people and telling them what they should do. And when he does, he'll probably wake up again. And when he does, he'll suffer. Oh, man, I did it again. And he'll make another mental note not to do that. And he'll work harder not to do it. And that's what this work is about. And you can do that. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at solidrockvista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.